0: Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> have you ever felt like others were viewing you as second class? Like you were less than or a notch below? have probably all been there at some point. It's not a pleasant feeling. Uh, just tell a quick story. Um, it was three, four years ago. Sarah and I went on a date down to the city, and we were driving this car at the time. I need to describe it for a moment. Um, it was the Nissan Altima that Sarah had when she was in high school, um, and I would say it was silver. But if you looked at it, you might not have agreed because the sun and the hail and the snow over the years had turned it all sorts of different colors, and. Uh, neither of us has a great driving record, so the front right was kind of bashed in. The back left, where the gas tank was, was kind of gashed from a pole that I had hit. The left rear view mirror was hanging off. Um, but the worst part of it was the this, this sound that it made when you turned it on. The best thing I could use to describe it is when I lived on the first floor apartment and the maintenance crew fires up the leaf blower when you're trying to sleep. Like, that's what it was like every time we turned our car on. And on this particular day when we were going on this date down to the city, um, it, uh, I had been falling behind on the brakes a little bit. So it was like fingernails on a chalkboard times all of us doing that at the same time. That's how the brakes sounded. So Sarah on our uh, parking app finds a cheap parking spot in a garage that's valet only, and we didn't realize it. So we just parked there, We valeted it when we got there, um, and went about our business, did our uh, dinner, whatever else we did. And then came back to the garage to find that there were like 20 people waiting for their cars. And the valets were running and getting the next one, getting the next one. And we're looking around at this like group of people we're standing with. And they're all like dressed to the nines. And these cars are pulling up like new Maserati, new BMW. And we're just like, what are we going to do? Like, like there are thoughts going through my mind like, do we just leave the car here and just... Take the train home. Um, But um, sure enough, our car came. We heard it about 20 seconds before we saw it. And as the valet driver pulled up, people were literally covering their ears when he (laughs) pulled up to us. And I just we just got in the car with our heads down and just pulled off as fast as we possibly could. Um, But it's not fun to feel like others are viewing you as second class, right? And that's a little bit of a uh light-hearted story about that, but I know that some of you have experienced feeling like others view you as second class to a much more serious degree. Maybe because of your accent, maybe because of your level of education, or the clothes that you wear, or the color of your skin. Um, that's no laughing matter, to feel like others are viewing you as second class. It's painful, and it's especially painful when it's coming from people that are believers in Christ, That feeling, that feeling of feeling like others are viewing you as second class, that's what the Gentile believers in the city of Antioch were experiencing in our text today. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 15? This is where we pick up in our book of Acts. We've been preaching it since last year, this book. Um, Our goal, by the way, Lord willing, is to finish Acts by the end of this summer. We're working our way through it. We're on pace to do that. Um... Where we've come so far is that in chapters 10, 11, 13, we've seen this new development in the history of salvation that Gentiles, that means not Jewish people, Gentiles who believe in Jesus are now part of God's family in addition to Jewish believers in Jesus. It's an amazing development in redemptive history, but it's only a matter of time before the status of these new Gentile believers is called into question. Like, are these Gentiles really... As much a part of our family as we are, say the Jewish believers, it's a problem here for the church, right in the middle of some great news that we've been seeing in the past weeks. We're going to see today that this problem starts in Jerusalem, and it gets solved in Jerusalem. We're also going to see that this chapter, chapter 15, uh, in some ways explains all the 14 chapters that have come before, and it kind of serves as a springboard for all the chapters that are going to come in the book of Acts. It's something like a midpoint of the book. Um, So, huge chapter, pivotal chapter. This chapter has something to say about three major Bible questions. Who is included in the people of God? What role does the law play for Gentile believers? And how should the church resolve disagreements? And if Pastor Craig would have uh, approved my request to preach for two hours today, I would have liked to preach on all three of these. Um, But since I can't, we're just going to look at this first one and focus on that. Who is included And the people of God. Um, We're going to hit the others tangentially, but we won't be able to give them the attention they deserve today. It's a longish text, 35 verses, so we're just going to read it in three parts as it comes. But what we're going to see is there's a problem in verses 1 through 5, a solution, and then there's joy that ensues because of that solution. So, first, the problem in verses 1 through 5 of Acts chapter 15. The problem is that there will always be people who try to add requirements to the gospel of grace. There will always be people who try to add requirements to the gospel of grace. Look for that as you follow along in verses 1 through 5 as I read. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Before we break down those five verses, a couple of definitions are in order. We already said a Gentile is someone who's not Jewish. Um, The dispute here is about circumcision. Circumcision is a medical procedure, it's undergone by Jewish males in fulfillment of the law to make them set apart among the nations around them. And according to verse one, we've got these people coming from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, to Antioch, where these Gentile believers are, and they're saying, hey, it's time for you to go to the doctor and get this done. It's time, uh, you thought you were saved just by placing your faith in Jesus, but you need more. You need to be circumcised and become Jewish, basically, if you want to be part of God's family. So then we ask, who are these people who are coming from Judea? What are they all about? Well, We have a clue, I think, in verse 5, where it seems to hint that these people, at least some of them, were from the party of the Pharisees. A Pharisee is a member of a sect within Judaism. It was known for its strict adherence to Jewish law. And you may have heard of Pharisees before. They often have a negative connotation. But here we see that there are believers in Jesus in the early church who still identify as Pharisees. So there's nothing inherently wrong with being a Pharisee. But what's wrong with this particular group of Pharisees is that they, they elevated the Old Testament law so much that they were insisting that for a Gentile to be included in the family of God, they had to pass through an intermediate step of becoming Jewish. In other words, they didn't believe that a Gentile could just become part of the family of God by placing their faith in Jesus. They believed they had to stop at the checkpoint, so to speak, and become a Jewish person first. Um, They said, they looked at the Old Testament and said, this is how you become part of the family of God. You become Jewish. And it's, after all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, isn't he? So you have to become Jewish to share a part in him. Um, So uh, these people we call Judaizers sometimes. This name has become attached to them, even though it's not in the text. A Judaizer has become known as someone who insists that Gentiles become Jews in order to be saved. And we'll use that term Judaizer as shorthand for these group of troublemakers in this text. But those definitions now out of the way, can you put yourself in the shoes of a Gentile believer in Antioch at this time? Can you imagine what that would have been like? Like, before you had come to know Jesus, you uh, had met these people, Paul and Barnabas, who had come to Antioch with this good news this good news about Jesus Christ and what he had done on your behalf. And this news that you heard made sense of everything in your life up to that moment. And so when Paul and Barnabas extended the invitation to you that you could be part of God's family by turning from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus, you jumped at the opportunity. Because the way your heart was singing at this news, you knew that this is what your heart was made for. Then these Judaizers come along. And they say, oh, you gave your life to Jesus? And you say, yes. Awesome. Did you become Jewish when you did? And you say, no, it didn't even occur to me. Why would I do that? they say, oh, well, you can't truly be saved. You can't truly become part of the family of God unless you become Jewish. You're a little bit rattled by that. And so you go back to Paul and Barnabas, I imagine, and you ask them, well, is this true? And Paul and Barnabas assure you, no. It's by faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone that you become part of God's family. You are part of God's family, no matter what any Judaizer says. But then, these Judaizers persist, right? And they stay in your ear about needing to be circumcised. And they're talking to all your friends. And some of your friends are starting to get really rattled about maybe maybe we have missed it by not becoming Jewish. And so, according to verses 2 and 3 of our text, you send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem... To take care of this issue. And it's not because you're trying to find out whether you actually are part of God's family or not, right? You know that you are. They've told you that you are. You send them to find out if those in Jerusalem know that you're part of God's family. You send them to find out if there's actually unity between the church in Jerusalem and this church in Antioch. So that's kind of the flow of the narrative here in these first five verses of chapter 15. Um, but uh, sorry, I got lost here. Um, oh, we need to make sure we understand the problem, though. And there's two layers to it. There's two layers to the problem of what these Judaizers are teaching. One is that they're saying, you need to become like our ethnicity in order to become a full member of God's family. That's part of what they are saying. Um, the Judaizers, if they were around today, would say that North Suburban Church probably... There's no need for it to exist because all of us Gentiles who have placed our faith in Jesus, we need to get circumcised. Um, and then we should probably all be wearing our prayer shawls and eating kosher. And for our worship time, we should go to the Messianic synagogue that meets here on Saturday mornings at Dot Hatikvah, right? That's what a Judaizer would say. Now, some of you might be like, hey, that sounds kind of nice to worship on Saturdays. They get to be home for the Bears games on Sundays. Um, but if any of you have visited a Dot, a wonderful service. You've got to be ready to be there all day on Saturday, I'm just saying. <laughs> Those people stay here a long time. Um, so some of you might think, okay, that's absurd to tell people they need to become like a certain ethnicity in order to become a full member of God's family. But we need to ask ourselves two questions before we just uh, think that that's just an absurd thing that somebody else would do. One is, how many Christian missionaries over the years have fallen prey to a lie just like this. Um, You've probably heard the stories of um, Christian missionaries, especially from the West, that have gone to other cultures over the years and shared the good news about Jesus, but then they've added on some things to it. They've said, okay, but now, actually, you have to uh, dress like a Westerner. You have to speak the language of Westerners. You have to follow Western cultural norms in order to really be treated as Christians. Right? And what about us? Do we do the same? You know, we we happen to be a majority white church. When a person of color comes to faith in our congregation, do we make space for them to live out their faith in a way that's comfortable with their cultural expressions? Or is there an implicit sense here that in order to be a full member of God's family, you need to live out your faith uh, in a way that reflects majority culture expressions? It's worth thinking about. It's true. It's true that before Jesus, in order to become part of God's family, you had to attach yourself to a particular ethnicity, the Jewish people. Um, But since Jesus came, he ushered in a new era in God's dealings with humanity, a new era in which all of us can be part of God's family simply by responding to the gospel, the good news of God's grace, with repentance and faith. So that's one layer of this lie, become like our ethnicity in order to become a full member of God's family. Another layer to it is follow these additional rules in order to be a full member of God's family. Follow these additional rules. In other words, the Judaizers were saying, you can't just accept this gift as though it's free. You have to earn it, at least in part, right? You have to follow the rules. You have to pay God back for what he's done for you. And to some of us, that might just feel a little bit reasonable, right? Like, yeah, I mean, God did a lot for me. It makes sense that maybe I would have to pay just a little bit of my own way, right? But we need to make sure we're clear on what that does to the gospel, if that's true. If you and I have to earn our salvation, even just the littlest part of it, here's what that does to the gospel. One, it really says that Jesus is insufficient to save. Because if you and I have to earn even a bit of our salvation— then what Jesus did for us on that cross was not enough to get the job done, right? And that's what the Judaizers miss in part is they miss the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. But another layer to what they miss when they're saying we have to earn it, at least in part, by becoming circumcised, by becoming Jewish, by following these additional rules in order to be saved, is that in effect, they're elevating the law above Jesus. They're saying that... um, Following Jesus is great as long as it makes us more committed to the law in the end. And what they're missing is that Jesus um, is the goal of the law, not the servant of the law. In other words, Jesus didn't come to point us to the law. The law was given to point us to Jesus. So again, when we think about this second one, that we have to follow additional rules in order to be a member of God's family. Some of us who have been around the church, I would say, that's absurd. I would never fall prey to that. But unfortunately... Some Christians do that same thing today. They teach that same thing. There's a couple examples that we could think of. Um, There are groups of Christians who say, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You ever heard that? You have to be baptized in order to be saved. You're not saved if you haven't been baptized. Okay? Um, Let me be clear that if you have placed your faith in Jesus and you haven't yet been baptized, you should. It's a good thing to do. Jesus commanded us to do it. There's no reason not to. And we'd love to talk to you about doing that. However... When people start to say, you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and you're not saved if you haven't been baptized, that's just doing the same thing that the Judaizers did here in our text when they say, you're not saved unless you've been circumcised and become Jewish, in effect, right? I had a friend in college who joined a campus organization who started really pressuring him hardcore that he needed to be baptized and he wasn't saved because he hadn't been baptized, and it really turned him off the faith for a long time. Uh, There's other ways that we can think of the people, Christians do this today. Um, Some Christians say, well, you're not a real Christian unless you believe in young earth creationism, right? That the world was created in six literal days, and it was only a few thousand years ago. You're not even a real Christian if you don't believe that. You can't be. Uh, Or you're not a real Christian unless you abstain from all alcohol, even when you're an adult even one drink, you've got to stay away from it or else you're not really saved, right? There's, there's all sorts of examples how different groups of Christians add on requirements to the gospel, right? And sometimes it's not even other people that do it. We do it to ourselves. Here's what I mean by that. After we are converted, our hearts still continue to return to this Judaizing, this voice that says, you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. There's something about our hearts that wants to save ourselves. And if I can earn it, even just feel like I earned a little piece of it, then I can keep feeling like I'm my own savior and I don't owe God as much, right? There's something appealing about that to us. And then we load on these rules on ourselves and we weigh ourselves down with guilt when we can't follow those rules, all because we just can't bring ourselves to accept the gospel of grace that we're saved by the work of Jesus alone. So both then and now, there will always be people, have always been people who add requirements to the gospel. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. But what that creates within the church is a a first-tier hierarchy and a second-tier hierarchy, right? When there's other requirements to the gospel, there's some people who are first class and some people who are second class within the church. And so for that reason, what's at stake here in Acts 15 is the unity of the church. And maybe even more importantly than that, what's at stake is the gospel itself, the gospel that provides the basis for that unity. If we want to just crystallize it in one just contrast, we might say this. The Judaizers would say, obey so that you can be accepted. Some people say that that's what the gospel is. They act as if that's what what the gospel is. That's not the gospel at all, friends. The gospel, someone who's grasped the gospel will say, I'm accepted by God, therefore I obey. And if we get that backwards, it's not just that we've uh, missed some semantics. We've actually missed the whole gospel itself. Let's go to the solution, verses 6 through 21. Uh, The solution to the problem that was presented in the first five verses is that the Spirit, both in our text and today, the Spirit provides experiential and scriptural evidence that God has created a new people saved by grace alone. The Spirit provides experiential and scriptural evidence that God has created a new people saved by grace alone. Would you listen for both parts of that, the experiential and the scriptural, as I read verses 6 through 21? It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe... That we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. We've had some congregational meetings here at Norsub in which the pastors and elders look at each other beforehand and say, I hope the Holy Spirit shows up today. Because this is a big meeting, right? This is one of those congregational meetings here in Acts 15. It's going to be a dicey one. It's going to be a critical one. Uh, It's unclear that the church, global church, can survive in its current form if Acts 15 doesn't go the way Acts 15 goes, right? At least without splintering off into all sorts of different religions and movements. They need the Holy Spirit to show up, and the Holy Spirit does show up. And I'm saying that the Holy Spirit shows up both experientially and scripturally to provide evidence of what he's doing. Let me take a look at, let me show you where both are there. Verse 8 is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the experiential evidence. It's Peter talking, and he's reminding those present at this congregational meeting of what happened back in chapters 10 and 11. Back when Peter shared the gospel with these Gentiles who... Had never been circumcised, uh, certainly hadn't become Jewish, and hadn't taken on the law of Moses. But nevertheless, when they heard the gospel and believed, the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled their hearts, just as the Holy Spirit had with the Jews earlier. And so Peter remembers that, reminds them of that, and says in verse 10 Hey, we've already heard what the Holy Spirit says on this matter. He has spoken to us experientially. We're going to add requirements now to the gospel of grace. We are putting God to the test. If God has moved on in his dealings with humanity, and he's going to just accept the Gentiles into his family if they just believe in Jesus, then we are sinful to insist that they become Jewish first. And Barnabas and Paul speak and tell their stories, add to the experiential notion of what the Spirit has done. And then James speaks up, right? James speaks up and he says, yes. And on top of all that, there's scriptural evidence that the Holy Spirit wants this to happen. He points back to Amos. That's what James is quoting there in verses 16 through 18 of our text. And you may remember when we preached through Amos in the fall, you may remember this passage coming up in chapter 9. What he's saying by using this passage, by quoting this passage, is that, hey, even the prophets in the Old Testament, who, by the way wrote what they wrote at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Even the prophets are in agreement with what we think we are seeing experientially in our own day and age, that God, in some time in the future, would one day bring the Gentiles into his family in large numbers and call them by his name. Um, And so the apostles and the elders look at this and they say, it seems to be true, after thousands of years of European Gentiles and Asian Gentiles and African Gentiles worshiping rocks and trees and rivers and the sun and ancestors, while only the Jewish people were following the one true God, the time has now come in salvation history in which Gentiles from all over the world are going to begin to seek the one true God and be incorporated into his family by faith. God is showing us, the Holy Spirit is showing us that by experience and by Scripture, the two agree. The Gentiles do not need to become Jewish in order to be saved. God has created a new people by grace, a new people that includes the Gentiles. So what does that mean for us this morning? I think it means that all of us, Jew, Gentile, wherever we come from, whatever our background is, we all get to be part of God's family by no other reason than by the basis of God's grace. Period. End of sentence. Peter says it well in verse 11 when he sums it up. Here's a devout, devoted Jewish person who continues to be a devoted Jewish person after he believes in Jesus, and here's what he says. We believe that we, that's the Jewish people, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There's no distinction. I want to make sure that everyone here has heard the good news that we're alluding to this morning and that you have heard it clearly. The good news that we're talking about and that these apostles and elders were clinging to is the good news that there's a God who made us to whom we are accountable. And he created us, even though he created us with Godlike capacity in some ways, because we're made in his image, we used those Godlike capacities not to serve him, but to serve ourselves. And in our rebellion against him, we became his enemies. But even though we were his enemies— he came in the person of Jesus Christ to die in our place, taking the punishment for our rebellion that we deserved so that we could be incorporated into his forever family. And that invitation is extended to us on the basis of nothing other than just faith. Believing in him, according to verses 7 through 9, that's how we receive it. It's by faith. And if, if you're new to all this this morning and you're just looking for something to grab onto before you leave, latch onto that. That gospel, that good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to him once again. It's the good news by which Jewish people are saved, and it's the good news by which us Gentiles are saved. In the interest of our time, we're going to need to move on to our third and final point here. Um, I'm going to have to resist the urge to talk about verse 20 and why those four requirements are there. Um, uh, but be glad to write something in the newsletter, or if you want to text in a question about that, we can address that. I want to move to this third point, though. The joy that ensues in these final verses of our text. Why is there joy? There's joy because the church's unity is preserved when we affirm our common status before God. The church's unity is preserved when we affirm our common status God. Listen as I read sections of verses 22 to 35 there. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And I'm actually going to skip over the text of the letter because it just affirms what we've seen so far. It's worth reading on your own though, but I am going to skip down to verse 30 and conclude this text. With many others also. Can you imagine how these Gentile believers in Antioch would have felt when they saw the delegation coming back into the city? I mean, I have to imagine that at least some of them are ready to just burst with anticipation. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them went running to meet Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas to ask what happened. Do they really think we're second class or are we going to be accepted into God's family with these Jewish brothers and sisters? Um, It reminded me a little bit of. Um, you remember in middle school when you went to a dance who's ever been to a middle school dance at some point in your life okay some of you have okay like most people are standing along the walls the whole time there's a few people courageous enough to dance in the middle right but then a slow song comes on and you've got that special someone that you want to ask to dance so what do you do You get their friend, right? And you talk to their friend and ask their friend if they're going to be willing to dance. And you say, hey, do you think she'd be willing to dance with me? And then the friend says, I don't know. Let me go see. And the friend goes and talks to the person you want to dance with. And you see them whispering and giggling. And then they come back with the news. It's either yes or no, right? It's sort of like Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. They're the friend who's coming back with the news. That's the anticipation that I imagine them feeling, that are we going to be able to continue dancing or not? The Gentile believers, Jewish believers, Antioch and Jerusalem, is it good or is it not? And they hear the good news. Yes, it is. We can continue dancing, hopefully less awkwardly than middle school Tim. Um, But there's great joy because of it. The Jerusalem church doesn't believe that we are second class They've been worried before about Peter and James and the crew in Jerusalem. Like, if they're allowing these Judaizers in their church to teach these things, how deeply do they really believe we're on the same level as them? But then they're filled with joy and united when they hear the news. No, Peter and James are all on board. The whole Jerusalem church is in agreement that we are all first class, first tier. We're on the same footing at the cross under Jesus Christ. I guess the question for us is with this third point is who among us might benefit from that affirmation today? I might just speak that affirmation right now just in the second person and just invite you if you have felt at any point like those within the body of Christ view you as second class for some reason, just hear this affirmation, receive it from the Lord and just let it wash over you now in these next few moments. Friend, you are not second class. You are not second class in the body of Christ. Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of how much money you have or don't have, regardless of what good works you've done or haven't done, regardless of what sins are in your past, regardless of what achievements are in your past, we are all saved by the grace of Christ. And we are all members of the same family. And as we kneel at the cross, we are all on equal footing before God. More sinful than we ever dared imagine, but more loved than we ever risked to hope. And if anyone makes you feel like you're second class in this family, your church leaders and your church family, We'll have your back and we will come around you and affirm that you are not second class. We can make that affirmation because of what this text told us today. That because salvation is by grace alone, no one, not Jew, not Gentile, is second class among the people of God. Because salvation is by grace alone, no one, Jew or Gentile, is second class among the people of God. Out there in the world, you may be treated as second class. Out there in the world, people do get treated as first class, second class. If you're driving a new Maserati, you're going to be treated differently than if you're driving a beat-down Nissan out there in the world. But it ought not be that way in the church family. We pray as a church that it isn't that way in our church family. And actually, in our church family, that's the only place where it really can be another way. Because in the church, we don't have to play make-believe just pretending like second-class people are really first-class. That's not what this is about. In the church of Jesus Christ, we believe that there's nothing truer about us, actually, than that we are on equal footing before the cross. If you aren't acknowledged as valuable out there in the world, please hear this morning that God views you as so valuable that you are worth saving at great cost to himself. If you don't feel like you are viewed as lovely out in the world, please hear this morning that God sees you as the object of his perfect, relentless love. And if you don't see yourself or feel like others see you as one of the great men and women out there in the world, or even in the church, know that there's a day coming when The God of the universe will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant, even as he is saying to some of those who were among the great on this earth, Depart from me, I never knew you. No one is second class in the family of faith because salvation was, and salvation is, and salvation always will be by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for making a way through Jesus Christ that we could all be part of God's family, whether Jew or Gentile, no matter our ethnicity or our status in this world's eyes. Thank you for our common status in God's family and let us live that out as brothers and sisters under Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.